0: Not only in life as uh, things, not always as they appear, but all too often in life we make things much more complicated than need be. Consider the following story I heard recently while I was at the airport. There was a man at Los Angeles International Airport who was worried about missing his plane. He had no wristwatch and could not locate a clock, so he hurried up to a total stranger and he said, "Uh, Excuse me, sir, could you please give me the time? The stranger smiled and said, sure. He sat two large suitcases down that he was holding, and he looked at his watch on his wrist and said, well, it's exactly 509. And the temperature is 73 degrees outside and it's supposed to rain tonight. Also in London, the sky is clear and the temperature is 38 degrees Celsius. The barometer reading there is 29.14 and it's falling. In Singapore, it's a sunny day with highs in the mid-90s and very humid. He said, oh, by the way, tonight here in Los Angeles, there'll be a full moon. Now, the guy who asked the question said, your watch could tell you all of that? He said, oh, yeah, and much more. He says, I've invented this watch, and I can assure you there's no other timepiece in the world like it. The man said to him, I've got to have it. I'll give you $2,000 for it. He said, no, it's not for sale. I invented it, and um, it's just not for sale. He said, i would give you $4,000 for it. He said, no, I can't give it to you because I invented it, and I'm going to give it to my son for his 21st birthday. He said, look, I'll give you $10,000 for it, and I've got the cash right here in my in my uh, briefcase. The man said, 10000 bucks." He goes, okay, sold. Takes it off, gives it to the man, the man with a big smile on his face, hands him the $10,000 in the briefcase. He's putting the watch on. He says, thanks, mister. And he starts walking away, and the guy taps him on the shoulder and said, hang on a second. Picks up the two large suitcases and said, you forgot your batteries. You know, needlessly complicating things in life. All too often we do it needlessly to say, and many times it's true even in our study of the Bible. So often as we study the Bible, we begin to read it and we want it to say what we want it to say. We try to make it say what it doesn't say and we we do all kind of twists and contortions to try to get it to say what we want it to say. Or even worse, we take that which is very simply explained and we make it more complicated than it needs to be. Today, as we resume our study through the book of Acts, I encourage you to allow God to get His message across to you as He sends it forth. To not try to make it say something that it doesn't. To allow God to speak to you. Not only to allow Him to speak to you, but also, just as importantly, to, as you listen to Him, prod you along to take specific action in your life. I would just encourage you and I would pray that we would all be obedient as the Word of God penetrates our hearts and as the Holy Spirit conviction convicts us of that which God would have us do in our life. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 3. And as you're turning to Acts chapter 3, at the same time, be turning off all your cell phones and pagers. And uh, we're going to take a look at Acts chapter 3 where we see the power of His name. The power of His name is identified for us in Acts chapter 3. It says, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. It says, and a certain man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to sit down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. It says, and when he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. And Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze upon him and said, look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. And with a leap, he stood upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had just happened to him. And while he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to, to, to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this, or why do you gaze at us, as if by our own power or piety? we had made Him walk. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified His servant Jesus, the One whom You've delivered up and disowned in the presence of Pilate when He had decided to release Him. But You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to You. But put to death the Prince of life, the One whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in His name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. The emphasis in Acts chapter 3 and also in chapter 4 is on the name of the Lord Jesus. Jesus. And in fact, as I've gone through my Bible in chapters 3 and 4, i circled the many times that the name of Jesus is used by the authority or the power in the name of Jesus. Because a name implies much more than identification. It carries with it uh, the idea of uh, authority and reputation and power. Uh, For example, last week when I was in Arizona with the angels at spring training, I went up to the uh, gate where the guard was before you get to the clubhouse where the parking lot is where the players park, and it parked outside... And I walked over to him, and I gave him my card, and I said, I'm here to see Tim and Garrett. They asked me to meet him here. And he looked at my card and wasn't overly impressed with it. <laughs> he just stood there and kind of gave me that look like, and? I said, well, uh, uh, they, asked, uh, they asked me to meet them here. Tim, Salmon and, and Garrett Anderson. And he looked again at me, and he looked at the card, and he heard what I said, and he said, wait a minute. I'll be right back. And he ran, and he proceeded to run, and he said, in fact, he said, you wait here and watch the gate uh, while I go. <laughs> it's a trick that always works, no. And uh, so he ran into the clubhouse, and he came running back, and the guy was retired, and now he was tired again. And, uh, and he said, um, oh, go ahead, you can go ahead in. And I looked over, and Tim was standing at the entryway, and he was laughing, and he was smiling, he was going like this. Just... And the guy goes, no, go, 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 go ahead, you can go. And I thought, wow, that's kind of interesting, you know. My name didn't mean a whole bunch. Uh, but their names really didn't mean much until I clarified who Tim and Garrett were. Then it meant a lot. And all of a sudden, I've got access to a place I didn't have access to just a moment before that. And I thought of that in, in light of the, 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 uh, the idea or, or what, the reality, the truth that we see here in this passage. And that is, uh, to put it all in perspective, if the names of Tim Salmon and Garrett Anderson have certain clout and certain authority and certain power that they could get me from the gate into the clubhouse. How much more so does the name of Jesus Christ, how much more authority does he have? The Bible says that all authority has been given unto him. The Bible says that Jesus Christ will judge every man. That the name of Jesus is above all other names. That there is no other name given unto men for salvation but the name of Jesus Christ. See, the names of Tim, and, Tim, Sam, and Garrett Anderson are limited because any other circle of influence that wouldn't mean anything. They could go somewhere else and say, I'm so-and-so, and the guy at the gate would look at him and say, and so what? There it meant something. But the name of Jesus means something throughout all the universe. For there's no other authority greater than Him. So we find in this particular passage today, we sing songs. In fact, in Proverbs 18.10, it says that there's no other. In fact, Proverbs 18.10 says this, the name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous run into it, and they are safe. We sing classic hymns like, I'll hail the power of Jesus' name. And in this particular passage, we're introduced to the truth that there is no name like Jesus. Just think about it from a very practical and logical manner. It's the name of Jesus that the world takes in a condemning and negative way when something doesn't go right in their life. Why Jesus of all the names in the universe? Why Him? Before I was a Christian and playing sports, I heard Jesus' name mentioned often. Somebody would throw a pick or fumble the ball or strike out with the bases loaded. And I used to think, you know, it's kind of interesting that his name comes up all the time. I never hear anybody say, ah, Buddha. (laughs) Ah, Confucius. Kicked another one. (laughs) Oh, Mohammed. Ah. We just don't hear it. Why? Because there's no other name like Jesus. There's a truth that needs to be conveyed as we see this. You know, the great concern of the first Christians was that the name of Jesus Christ, God's Son, be glorified. And believers today should have the same concern. I had a guy come up to me and say, you know, my boss continually uses the name of Jesus in vain. He said, what should I do about it? I said, well, you know, you really need to pray about it first. But uh, I wouldn't hesitate to confront him with no one else around and say, hey, by the way, I just want to let you know something, that every time you use the name of Jesus in vain, that it's very insulting to me. And I'll tell you why, because what's your your mother's name's Bertha? How would you like me every time something goes wrong around here to go, well, you know what, Bertha? So you probably get insulted by that. You probably wouldn't think that's very funny. So, so I just want to share with you something that obviously that you've probably never thought about, but you know what? Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. And he died for me. And it's, you know, and it's hurtful to hear that. I just want you to consider that. You know, not in front of anybody, not to call anybody out. You never want to do that. You don't want to go toe-to-toe with your boss because you'll probably lose. And so the bottom line is, is that if it's something that opens the door for conversation, what a wonderful thing that that is. You know, how often we have those opportunities and we just pass on them because, what, we're afraid of the consequences of it? So you're going to pray that he just stops saying it? You know, the early Christian church was concerned that the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, be glorified. And rightfully so. You know, in our last message, we saw the Lord was adding to His church daily. If you've got your Bibles open, you see that in chapter 2, verse 47. It said that those who believed, the Bible says, that, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. When we read the words being saved, they were being saved from the condemnation or the wrath of God, the judgment of God which all of humanity has to answer for as far as sin is concerned. They were being saved from the judgment of God. Those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, having recognized what God said was true, that they were sinners, and they turned from sin and turned to God and asked for forgiveness and believed that Jesus Christ was sent to die in their place. It says those who believed that message were being added to the church daily. In this particular passage here in chapter 3, we find a, a stunning and an amazing example of a person, one person, who was among the multitudes of people who were being added to the family of God on a daily basis. And in order to gain a better understanding of the passage, we're going to examine the text in the following manner. We're going to take a look at verses 1 through 3, uh, the condition of the man as it's explained to us. The second thing that we're going to see is the challenge of Peter in verses 4 through 6. The third thing is the cure of the lame man in verses seven through eleven, and the cause behind the miracle, which will take us through um, chapter uh, verse eleven through sixteen. So if we're going to take a look at it, let's take a look at it one at a time, and we're going to see first and foremost the condition of the man is given for us in the first few verses that we see. The condition of the man in verses one through three are spelled out for us very clearly. The Bible says, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer, and there was a certain man who had been lame from his mother's womb who was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful, in order to beg alms alms of those who were entering the temple. It's important that God chose a man whose condition was well known to the multitudes. God was at work and his work was out in the open. If you recall, many times, Jesus Christ, as He healed those and miracles were performed, He did so out in the open. And those who testified of the authority and the power of Jesus Christ said, hey, the things that Jesus did, He didn't do behind closed doors. These things were done out in the open so that those who believed and those who didn't believe, they all saw the truth of what was taking place. When He when he called Lazarus out of the tomb it was in front of everyone that was there to mourn his death it wasn't something he did in secret there was no, uh, no smoke and mirrors here there was no hand tricks or sleight of hand Jesus Christ healed people and he did it out openly so that all of those who would see it were then forced to deal with what it was that they were looking at there was nothing hidden or secretive about it it was out in the open you know it was interesting even his enemies they did not deny what Jesus had done they merely simply, believed to, they simply refused to believe that it was by the power of God that he did it. Oftentimes, they accused Jesus of doing the things he did by the power of Satan. They saw what he did. They just refused to give him credit for what was done or to say that it was God working through his servant Jesus Christ. And they tried in every way to write it off. See, what we see here is that God deliberately chose a person whom the multitudes knew every day for 40 years. This man was sat before them, and they saw him as they went into the temple. And God deliberately chose a certain man. This wasn't something random. When God does something, He doesn't do it randomly, kind of like, I'm bored today, I think I'll do something. Everything that He does, and we saw it, wonders signs, and miracles. The purpose of those signs was to point to a truth that He was about to convey. God chose a certain man to demonstrate the authority and the power that had been given unto Jesus when He said, All authority has been given unto Me. All authority on heaven and earth. At the name of Jesus, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord to the glory of God. And for some, it will be the last thing that they do before they're sent to a place called hell for all of eternity. The condition of this man was well known and what God was about to do for this man was stunning and compelling testimony as to the identity of Jesus Christ. They could not refuse to believe what had happened, but they could refuse to believe how it happened and who did it. And that was really what we're going to see take place. The condition of the man was well known. It wasn't, some mar- it wasn't some simple miracle or sleight of hand trick. It wasn't a mental disorder that could be easily explained away. That's important to note. The man was born lame. He'd sat out in public, as I mentioned, in the same place every day for 40 years. And in fact, we see that in verse uh, 22 of verse four, uh, chapter 4, it tells us exactly that he was 40 years of age. And the three things that stand out at this particular po- point are this. First, we are given the the, uh, the identity of the place in which all this happens. The place and the time, we're told that this took place at the gate of the temple called Beautiful. In the overall temple area, there was a court of the Gentiles, which was a huge area. On the eastern wall of that was the Solomon's Portico, which we read about in this passage. The court of the women was the first actual court that came, and then the court of Israel, where only men could go in, and then there was the temple, where only priests could go in, and then there was the place of the Holy of Holies. So we get a very clear geographic understanding of what is taking place here. Herod's temple had taken 46 years to build, And in fact, you may recall there was a time when Jesus said, you destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. And they laughed at him. And they were saying, what do you mean you destroy the temple? It took 46 years to build the temple. And they misunderstood what he was saying. He wasn't speaking of the temple building itself. He was speaking of the temple, the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is body, as we know in 1 Corinthians. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit of God? And so he was saying that you're going to destroy my body, but three days later I'll raise up. And he had told them exactly what would take place, but they laughed at him and thought he was crazy that the temple could be destroyed. It took 46 years to build. Well, Nicanor's Gate was a gate that was named after the person who had donated it. And Josephus, the Jewish historian, says the gate was 75 feet high and uh, 60 feet high were the doors, and it took 20 men to close it every evening. This was a huge gate. The Bible tells us that it was at this place, by this gate, that this man was taken every day in order to beg alms. It says that it was at the ninth hour, meaning it was three o'clock in the afternoon, the exact hour of the afternoon sacrifice. It would be the time where there was the most people that were going into the temple at that particular time. There would be The biggest crowd of the day would be at three o'clock. Everything that God does, He does for a reason and a purpose we notice the people that are identified for us in this particular passage. There are certain people, and I think it's interesting, and and it's important that we look at that because it says that he was carried along every day to the same place for 40 years. I thought, wow, you talk about compassion and commitment and consistency. Because this was no easy journey. They carried this man. According to Josephus, there are 14 steps on three sides that lead up to the court of women. Five more steps that led up to this gate. He could go no further because he was lame and no one with any infirmity could go any further than that. And every day, he was carried to this particular place in order to beg alms. I think, wow, you know what? There's a lesson in that for all of us. The consistency, the compassion to continue to meet the needs of people around us. The third thing and the purpose of all of it, as I've mentioned, was so that he could just beg uh, alms so that he could have some substance in his life. It was a great place to go. A very strategic place to go. There's no better place to hang out if you want to try to prey upon the compassion of people around you than to stand outside a church, or a temple in this case, to beg for money as people are going in to worship God. This is a great location. I mean, think about it. You know, you're going in and you're telling God how holy you are and how you're know how you honoring to God and all these things that you do. And, hey, here we are begging right in front of you, what do you got for us? Every day, the same place. It was like his corner. It's like some of you, it's your seats. You know what I mean? You come to the same place, it's your seats. And, And it's important to know that because, see, a lot of times, like, I can look out and if you sit in the same place all the time, I know who's not here. But, see, the only reason you sit in the same place is because you're always here. The other people that don't want to know anybody if they know if they're here or not here, you kind of like just kind of randomly. Now the balcony people, you're so far away, I can't really tell who you are. So you're all safe. You just come in anytime you want, go anytime you want, what you do anyway. So it kind of works out good. So you just have that freedom there. But uh, so anyway, they lay this guy. They lay this guy down in the same place every day, and so that's why, in fact, you see in verse 10, it says that hey, isn't this the guy who used to lay by the beautiful gate every day? This is the same guy. See, everything God does, he does for a reason. It says, now Peter and John were going up to the temple. Peter and John, I love that statement. As I was reading through it, the thing God impressed upon me was this Peter and John. You know, Peter and John are often found associating with one another all through Scripture. Peter and John, they used to be partners in a fishing business before Jesus came along and said, you know what? Why don't you come and be fishers of men? You catch them, I'll clean them. You know what I mean? (laughs) It came. Partners in a fishing village. With James, they were part of the inner circle. They saw Jesus glorified on the Mount of Transfiguration. They prepared the last Passover meal for Jesus. It says that they ran to the tomb together and they turned it into a race. You know, I love the Word of God. It's just so real. You know, one ran out ahead of the other one and he goes, I got there first. You know, I like think It's always in competition until the Spirit of God came and took that all away from them. In competition. But Peter and James, and I thought just as a side note to throw out, Who do you associate with? If your life was written today, there's Peter and John, always together, serving their Lord, the one they love. The Lord they love, the Word of God that they love, they're serving them together. Who are your friends? Who do you hang with? Who do you spend time with? Are they people that love the Lord? with all their heart, all their mind, and all their soul, all their strength? That they love the, Lord, the, the Word of God and have it as the standard by which everything that they do is measured? Peter and John, what a great statement, isn't it? Like Peter and John, if the Bible says, don't be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals, the Bible is equally clear that like iron sharpens iron, so one brother sharpens another. Like Peter and John, I would just encourage you to find someone who loves the Lord and the Word of God and is held accountable by it and will encourage you to continue to walk a life of obedience and a life of service because it doesn't take long when we're out of that circle of influence before we're pulled in an opposite direction of the one that God would have us go. At a meeting last week and we were sharing with a bunch of guys that we're all in baseball ministry together in some way or another. Just the sad stories of men who were on the boards of ministries, men who had served the Lord for a number of years, that for one reason or another, as they've gotten sidetracked from fixing their eyes on Jesus. I hear one leaving his wife, and another who is caught committing adultery, and it just breaks my heart. But it also makes you realize that, you know, we're all susceptible to that. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as we see the day that Jesus approaches drawing near. We all need accountability, we all need help and encouragement to be obedient to the Lord and His calling in our life. I would encourage you to consider. Finding that person or persons that you can have a good time with, but they also keep you fixed upon Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy that was set before him, endured the pain and despised the shame. The second thing that we come to is brought to our attention in this passage is the challenge, the challenge of Peter. As he comes in contact with this particular man, we see the challenge of Peter in verses 4 through 6. And we read these words, and Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze. In fact, the word gaze is the same word that's used in Acts chapter 1, uh, where, we, where we talked about, and the men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing intently up into the air as Jesus ascended into heaven? The same word is used of gazing or looking intently at someone for the purpose of trying to discern what is going on. And as I read these words, and it says that Peter and John, it says that they gazed upon him and said, look at us. And as they gazed upon him saying, look at us, there was a purpose or an intention. And I believe that as we look at this and it's a, it revealed to us that Peter was looking at this man and the Spirit of God was telling him distinctly what it was that God would have him do. There was a purpose behind it. There was something that God wanted to do through that apostle at that particular time. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Well, what do you think he was expecting? Well he was there to beg for money. I knew, you know that's what he was expecting. That's what he was hoping that he was gonna get. That's why he went there every day. And maybe the people that carried him, maybe they all cut you know, they they, they split the profit, so to speak. But the bottom line is, as I look at this, he says to him, but Peter, and that's why we know that he was thinking he was going to get something other than what he was about to receive because there's a contrast. The thought on the part of that guy who was laying there, the lame man was, I'm going to get money. But Peter said, contrast, 180 degrees different from what was about to happen, but Peter said, I don't possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. Walk. You know, it's amazing to me that Peter even noticed this one lame beggar is evidence of the Spirit of God and His ministry in our life. See, because God doesn't overlook anybody. That He would notice one out of a multitude of people and we'll see in in our study in the book of Acts, there were thousands of people that were at the temple that day. And literally hundreds of beggars. All probably in the same spot because they couldn't go any further. It was the last stop before you got into the temple. That... Peter would recognize or pick this one man out out of hundreds that were there was specifically because he was led by God to do so. The reminder that we see here, and it's a very simple one and that's this. The reminder is that we are reminded that our greatest need, contrary to popular opinion, is not money, nor more money, nor more stuff we don't need any more money. We don't need any more material things. Contrary to every person that's sitting here who probably in the course of this week said to themselves, I wish I made a little bit more money. I wish I had a little bit more money. Contrary to the popular belief, our greatest need is forgiveness and spiritual healing. That's our greatest need. In fact, it was Jesus who warned us by asking this question. He said, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world? and yet lose his soul? Or, what do you have that you would exchange? Or what do you want that you would exchange for your soul? The question is a very simple one. And that is, what would you exchange for your soul? You know, there's only two things that live forever, and that's the Word of God and the souls of men and women. Jesus said, what does it profit you if you gain the whole world and you go to hell? How's it going to help you? See, we're reminded that the most important question one can ask of oneself is this. Where will my soul spend eternity? There's no more important question than that. Where am I going to go when I die? See, this man needed salvation for his soul and healing for his body, and you know what? And money couldn't provide either. Couldn't provide either. We cannot buy God's forgiveness. Money will never gain one access to heaven. It is only by the precious blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross. It is all to him that we owe. It is he who took that crimson stain of sin. And for those who believe, he makes it white as snow. See, there's a recognition that takes place here too, as well. And the recognition that we find is the source and power of authority, he says it very simply, it is the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene. It is in His name, it is by His authority, that we're going to do for you what we're about to do. It is in His name. You know, what's interesting to me is I meet people and, you know, they, 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 for, for many years, and especially when I first became a Christian, people would ask, well, you know, what, what's happened to you? <clears throat> Why have you changed so much? Why aren't you like you used to be? What's going on in your life? And I would simply say to them that I recognize that I was a sinner. And I was on my way to hell. And I believe what God says, that He sent Jesus Christ to die in my place. And if I believe Him, I become a child of God, and that I'll never be held accountable for sin. So I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And it is He who has changed me. And they look at you like, no, seriously, what is it? You know, it's like, no, I just told you what it is. You want to know, I'm telling you, this is the explanation. No, you know what, you just grew up, or you're a little more mature, or you got your education, or whatever, you married and settled down, you had a couple of children, you settled down, that's what it was, right? No, it's Jesus. It is by the authority and the power given to Jesus that I am born again then I'm not who I used to be. Old things pass away, all things become new. I'm not who I used to be. It's Jesus. Do you understand? Jesus Christ has changed my life. See, the explanation is exactly what we find here. The recognition of the power of His name. Literally, what He says to him. notice this, He says, Peter says, I don't possess silver and gold, but what I have I give to you. In the name of of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, by the authority that has been given to Him. All authority has been given to Him. He says to Him, Walk. Literally, the command is, be walking. Be walking. And the Bible says that he is healed. Now, the question for you is this. Was it simply saying the words that made him happen? Is there a magic formula that we have we say, hey, you know, be healed. And someone's healed. Was it the faith that this lame man had? Do you notice any faith that the lame man had? Was it because of faith in him? No, it had nothing to do with him. It had nothing to do with the words. All that it had to do was the name and the authority that was given to Jesus that, that God would, would glorify Jesus Christ through this incident, this event that would take place. It had nothing to do with anybody other than God and God's plan to glorify Jesus Christ through this event. And the Bible tells us that God used the apostles in verse 43 of chapter 2 that there were many wonders and signs taking place through the apostles. And I want to take a minute to kind of go through something that I think is important at this time because it ties in directly and that is this. There is much confusion in our world today with regards to miracles and the so-called gift of healings that we hear about. What we have complicated, the Word of God will simplify, and I want to share some things with you very simply. As we read through the book of Acts, and as we see the apostolic healing ministry, what God did through the apostles, there are several things we need to take note. Number one, first, many alleged healings today are fraudulent. Which means over years, faith healers have been exposed as charlatans. They do some mind manipulation. There are people that have authority figure things where it's like, you know, if you're an and you tell me something, I'll believe whatever you say that, 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 you know, that it's going to happen, it's going to happen. A lot of what we hear, so-called healings are psychosomatic illnesses or, you know, mental disorders that a person has and you can't really validate or verify whether the person was really nuts before they came in or even more nuts when they left. You know, bottom line is, is that the things that we need to recognize and understand about the healings that we see God doing through the apostles were that He took physical ailments that could not be denied. That could not be explained away. How can you explain a man that's lame for 40 years all of a sudden is up walking around shouting and praising God? How can you write that off and explain that away? Think about the things that Jesus did. He rose to those who those who were dead. He took those who were blind and could never see and then they could see. He took those who couldn't hear. And the apostles, as we go through the book of Acts, we'll see the same authority was given to them that he could, they could do the same thing by the power and the name of Jesus Christ. Why? It was to glorify Jesus as the servant of God who said that He would be Messiah. This is what Messiah would do. Savior would do these things. took those who couldn't walk, took those who couldn't see, took those who couldn't hear. He, he took those who were dead, and, 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 and they were healed. Today, you know what? You won't find any of that in any of these so-called healings. You know, you just don't. We're going to talk a little bit more in a second about it. The second thing is, is that Satan and his demonic hosts can also produce counterfeit healings. They do so not only under the guise of false religion, but under the deception of an umbrella called Christianity. Let me read to you. Jesus warned that false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order if possible to lead even the elect astray. Mark 13.22 The Apostle Paul echoed that warning relating it specifically to the coming man of sin when he said this, speaking of Antichrist, there's one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders. 2 Thessalonians 2.9 Jesus warned that many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in Your name and in Your name cast out demons, in Your name perform many miracles. And He will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from Me, you who practice lawlessness. Listen carefully. God is not involved in, nor does He approve of, everything done in the name of Jesus. Did you follow that? God does not, is not involved in, nor does He approve of, everything done in the name of Jesus. What's interesting is, Still less does he desire testimony from demonic sources. Think how many times were apostles. Jesus, for example, refused to allow demons to disclose his true identity. Paul refused to allow a demon possessed girl in Acts sixteen, even to testify to the truth that he and Silas were God's servants. Satan is perhaps more dangerous in his subtlety as a wolf in sheep's clothing than he is as a roaring lion. Thirdly, contrary to the teaching of many today, the early church was not a miracle-working church. And in fact, as we read through the book of Acts, we're going to find that the miracles were all worked through the apostles. Plain and simple. And that when the apostles died, there's no evidence in church history that those miracles continued. And it's important to recognize and understand that because what God was doing was validating Jesus, his Savior, and also validating the apostles as his spokesmen. When the Word of God was complete, we no longer need validation because all you have to do to see if I'm speaking for God is pick up your Bible, read it, and check it, and examine it daily to see if the things that are said are really the things of God. There's no validation that needs to take place. The validation is here. God will validate through the Spirit of God in your life the conviction of the Spirit that if truth is being told, you'll know it by reading the Word of God and say, hey, the man's speaking the truth from God. There's no other validation that's necessary. Fourth, and this is interesting and fascinating, you'll see as we go through this, in every recorded instance of the gift of healing in Acts, it is unbelievers who are healed. Isn't that fascinating? Think about this for a second. Unbelievers who are healed. As a sign, what? The sign was the point of the faith in Jesus Christ. What does a believer need healed for? We already put our faith and trust in Christ. Now, some of you are thinking, well, does that mean God doesn't heal anymore? And the answer is, well, absolutely not. God still heals. He listens to the prayer of His people. And if it's consistent with His will, will, He'll heal. It's important that we know that. It's important that we understand that. But what's fascinating as we go through this, every evidence of it, in fact, the greatest argument against the so-called healings or miracles uh, done through the church is this. Why was Paul not healed? Says he entreated the Lord three times about a thorn they had in the flesh, some physical ailment that he had. He prayed to God three times, God, remove this ailment, this affliction from me. The bottom line of it all was this God said, hey, you know what? I'm not removing it from you because in that weakness in your life, my power will be perfected. If Timothy, why, why did Paul heal Timothy, his, his, his servant, his son in the Lord? He said, look, you got a bad stomach? Drink a little bit of wine. You know, it's good. There's a little bit of alcohol in there. It'll take care of that, 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 that ailment that you have. There are unbelievers that were healed for the purpose of leading in the faith in Christ. God still heals today, but it's in consistency with His Word. You know, it's interesting, when I was back in Orlando um, about a month ago now, um, I, was, I was sick. I've been sick for six weeks now. And you know what, I'll tell you what, I mean, I, I, I do the same thing you do. It's like, Lord, now you spoke the world into existence. How hard is it to say, you're healed? <laughs> I mean, we had this, we've had this conversation. We're still having this conversation. You know, and it's like, you know, that's not that hard. I mean, I see all the stuff you do. I mean the the heavens speak of your glory, the handiwork. Man, I mean it's like, Lord, this is not hard. You you raised people from the dead. You took, you know, a sinner's life and you've given me new life in Christ. I mean, I know what you can do. What's this little thing in my throat, my in my lungs? Just bang, gone. Well, so I'm at this conference. And you got to picture who's there. People from all over the country, all different types of, um, quote, religious background, religious training, theological understandings, you know, just a whole different group of guys. (laughs) And, uh... And so, you know, I'm just sick, I'm hacking, I'm sick, I'm just like, eh, I'm all delirious, you know, I'm laying on the plane, I'm all soaking wet, you know, people sitting there next to me are like the people that I think about when they get on the plane, they start hacking at me, and I'm just like, you know, why did they let you on the plane? And I'm thinking, everybody on the plane is thinking what I think about other people that shouldn't be on the plane, because now I'm one of them. So, but, um, so, uh, this guy, so one of the guys comes in, he goes, hey, brother, can I pray for you? I say, man, you can pray for me. I t- Everybody here can pray for me. I mean, I'm not, I don't have any problem with that. Anybody wants to, you pray. So he came down, he put his hands on me, he started praying. Every verse you can think of, every passage, you know, in the name of Jesus, authority given give him, just, you, you know, just this verse, that verse, the other verse, claim this promise, claim that one, pray the other one, in. Yeah, this was going on and on. I'm getting sicker and sicker to listen to him. Because <laughs> the whole time I'm thinking, man, this is some bad theology. And, and he's just going on, and, and it's like, I said, man, thank you. You know, thank you. Next day, I'm down in the meeting, and, I, and I'm, out, I'm out in the hallway. And there's like, you know how like in a hotel they got those little couches, you know, and those little things. And, I'm, and the rooms behind me here, the, the meeting's going on, I'm like this. <laughs> trying to listen to what's going on. Now the same brother came walking by me, he sees me, he gives me like a look and he goes, Are you still sick? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. Can I pray for you again? I say, said, yeah man, you can pray for me all you want. Keep on praying. And he started again, like, you know, you know, and I'm thinking the whole time, I know what he's thinking. Brother, confess your sin. You are sick because you are sinful, man. What are you hiding from the Lord? Just give it up, brother. The whole time I'm just thinking, like, I don't want to say to him, really, I've confessed my sin. I don't know what's going on. It's maybe God's not willing and I'm healed yet. But he kept doing it. And I was thinking, man, it all reminded me of a story that I heard. It was about one of those faith healers, you know, and they had a miracle service tonight at 6.30, which I always kind of think, you know, it's kind of interesting that, you know, they can plan them. You know? (laughs) You know, it's like, God, I hope you're not busy tonight at 6.30 because we really put our necks out on the line telling everybody we're going to be healing people tonight. So we hope you're not busy somewhere else. So faith healing tonight, miracle service, 6.30. So the guy's up on stage. You got two people off in the wings out behind the curtain. He calls the first guy and he says, Come on out. The guy comes walking out, and he's got a walker. He comes walking over to him, he comes over to him. And the guy says, Brother, what's your name? He says, My name's Harold. say, Harold, what's your problem? He goes, Harold says, I can't walk without my cane. He says, Harold, do you want to be healed? Harold says, Yeah, I do. He goes, Okay, Harold. And he starts to pray. And he smacks Brother Harold upside his head. He says, man, you are healed. And Harold's kind of like a little bit stunned, you know. But, you know, and and he grabs his cane off him, and he says, throws the cane out in the audience. The audience is going crazy now. And Harold's like, praise God. And Harold walks out behind the curtain. Next guy calls him out. Says, calls him out and says, brother, I understand your name is Roger. And Roger, you got a speech impediment. Is that right? Roger goes, just nods his head. Yeah, that's right. You know, can't say anything. He says, Now, Roger, do you want to be healed? Roger's going, So he does the same thing. Smacks Roger upside his head. He says, Roger, what do you got to say for yourself? And Roger goes, And he points over the curtain and goes, Hey, 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 hey Harold, fell down. You know, and and, I, and I, I know, and I know. You know, I felt bad for my brother who'd been praying for me because I felt like I was letting him down. You know, I wanted to be healed. I wanted that prayer to work, and it was like, you know, but God has sometimes God has a different plan for our lives. Sometimes God's trying to show us something else and teach us something else. You know, as we look at this, you know, and we begin to understand the cure of the lame man. The message that's here is more important than anything else that we can find, and that's this. In Acts chapter three, notice in verse seven it says, "And seizing the man, seizing the man." Now stop and think about this. This isn't some manipulation here. This isn't some mind game. This isn't some hand, you know sleight of hand. I mean, this is evident what was going on. It says there was some action that took place. Peter demonstrated you know his faith in the power of Christ. Peter was the one who seized the man's arm and told him, be walking. He didn't wait to see what was going to happen next. He knew what God wanted him to do in that situation. I believe the Spirit of God led him clearly to do what it is that he did. It had nothing to do with Peter's faith. It had nothing to do with the faith of the lame man. It had nothing to do with anything other than it was a plan of God to demonstrate the power that was given, the authority that had been given to his servant, Jesus Christ. And you say, how do you know that? And I'll show you in a minute. But this is exactly what was taking place. Secondly, we see that the man had the ability to walk. How can you argue with what just took place? The man had the ability to walk, notice this, and with a leap, with a leap, he stood upright, began to walk. He entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. I love this man. This guy was pumped up. Think about it. This white dude could jump. I mean, he got up. He was like, man, you know, you see all this. I think he's moonwalking in the temple. You know, he's up doing that Toyota click your heel thing. Man, this guy was so excited. I mean, you you couldn't help but notice what was going on. He had the ability to walk that was given to him. Third, the attitude is important that we see here. The attitude that we see of this man, his faith in God after he was healed. It was after he was healed that he began to praise God. There was nothing before that indicated that it had anything to do with his faith, lack of faith, no faith. It was after God did this miraculous work in his life that his attitude was, man, I can't wait to tell everybody what Jesus Christ has done in my life. And I think, wow, is that true of our lives? When Jesus Christ called you from darkness into his light, the purpose was so that we can proclaim the excellencies of Him who calls us from darkness into light. He was praising the name of Jesus. And I think, wow, how convicting is that? What has the Lord done in your life? And when was the last time your attitude toward Him, that of praise and thanksgiving, was demonstrated in a public way before an arena of non-believers? He was walking and leaping and praising God. The real praise was extended to God. Notice that. He didn't praise Peter and John. He praised God in the name of His Lord, Jesus Christ. Man does not get the glory that rightfully belongs to God. Never has, never will, never should. Jesus Christ gets all the praise. And to him be the glory. Now, notice also the amazement of the people that were there. All the people saw him walking and praising God in verse 9, and they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what was happening, at what happened to him. And while he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. The word amazement, remember, is that of awe. They were like, their their jaws were dropped. What is happening here today? What is the meaning of all of this? What is the purpose of this? The question is, what is it that God is doing here in our midst today? And the whole purpose of everything that God did was to generate an audience so that Peter could proclaim the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Isn't that awesome? Everything God does in our life is to bring an audience to us, whether it is an audience of one or an audience of thousands, so that we can share with them the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything God does in your life and mine He does for a purpose. And the eternal purpose is so that we can share truth so that some may be saved. When was the last time you took advantage of the audience that God brought to you to declare to them the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Notice what happens as the cause, and we wrap all this up in verses 12 through 16. The cause behind this miracle was God Himself. The cause behind the miracle is God Himself. As I read these, this passage, there's three truths. Notice, but when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, "Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this, or why do you gaze at us, as if by our own power or piety somehow we made him walk?" Notice the contrast there. It says they came to them and thought, "Wow, you guys are awesome." And Peter and John said, "We're not awesome." Why why are you staring at us, us as if somehow we're something special? It reveals God's purpose behind this particular miracle, and notice what it is. Now, Peter gets into the explanation in verse 13. He says this The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus, the one whom you delivered up and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. Notice that? What's God's purpose? What does it reveal? that God did what He did to glorify Jesus Christ and to declare to those who were asking and were open and teachable as to what was going on to them to put their faith and trust in Jesus, the Nazarene, who is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. It's awesome that guy got the benefit of this message and that God used him to demonstrate the authority in the name of Jesus. Jesus. Because not only did he get up physically and walk, but he spiritually was healed because we noticed that after this experience that he was walking and leaping and praising God. But the real message was that people would put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. As we have Easter approaching us, the message is a very simple one, and that is, what's the whole purpose of raising Jesus from the dead? It's the greatest sign to demonstrate that Jesus Christ is indeed the Savior of the world. There's no one else in human history that has been raised from the dead and is still alive today. The bottom line is that God raised Him up on the third day, according to Scripture, so that man would believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world. There is no other name under heaven given by which men can be saved. It reflected also the attitude of the multitudes of people because He said to them, Hey, you delivered Him up. You disowned Him in the presence of Pilate when He had decided to release Him. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and you even asked for a murderer to be set free instead of Him. They were indicted and they were guilty. And so are you and so are I because it's our sin that sent Jesus Christ to the cross. You are guilty and I am guilty. They were guilty. And we need to understand that guilt before we can ever ask God for forgiveness. If you don't think you're guilty, why would you ask for forgiveness? See, repentance is something we don't talk about in our culture because it's looked at as such a negative thing. But until you acknowledge your guilt, why would you ask for forgiveness? I see it all the time in our relationships with one another, especially in marriages. It's like, well, I don't think I did anything wrong. Why should I ask for forgiveness? Well, until you realize that you did something wrong and that you're guilty, you won't ask for forgiveness. And even if you do, it doesn't mean anything. Okay, well, if it's going to shut you up, okay, I'm sorry. Sorry for what? I don't know why'd you go there. Why didn't you just leave it and I'm sorry? Because then we can move on. Well, no, what are you sorry for? I'm sorry because I hurt your feelings. I'm sorry I said because when I said I was going to call you, I didn't call you. I'm sorry because I'm callous and I'm a guy. You know, I'm sorry just for being a man. I, you know that that covers it all. I'm this guilty. It's an umbrella guilt. <laughs> you know, it's just you know stupid. I'm, you know, it's just. But but see, it reflects the fact that they were guilty before God. They had put to death the Prince of Life. And the third thing we notice the requirement. And it was faith in His name. In verse 16. And on the basis of faith in His name. Whose name? Jesus Christ. It is on the basis of faith in His name. It is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through Him has given Him this perfect health in the presence of you all. In closing, this is just a beautiful passage. To me, it paints a beautiful picture of salvation. And I want to just kind of give it to you as we put it all together. And that's this. Here was a man who was born lame. From his mother's womb, he came into the world with an infirmity, this lameness that he had. The Bible says that each of us have come into the world born lame as well. That because of the sin of our father Abraham, that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, none of us are righteous, no, not one. That we're all born into the world with an infirmity called sin. It's interesting, the man was also poor. And as sinners, we are also bankrupt before God and we're unable to pay the tremendous debt that we owe Him. It says He was outside the temple. And no matter how close He got, He couldn't get in. And no matter how close you think you are to gaining access into the presence of God after this life, the Bible says there's no way you can get in. He thought that silver or gold could buy His way into the presence of God. And many in our world today think that they can go ahead and spend a lot of money or give a lot of money or donate money or give to the poor or build buildings or help certain ministries or hospitals or churches or whatever. And if they just do enough good things that somehow or another that they're going to gain access into the presence of God. And the Bible says that, you know what? There's no way any of us can buy God's forgiveness because Jesus Christ paid the price on the cross for you and for me, for all who would believe, sufficient for the world, applicable only to those who believe. The man was healed wholly by the grace of God. And the healing was immediate and the healing was permanent. And we need to recognize and understand it's by grace we've been saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's a gift from God so that none of us could ever boast. When you repent of your sin and you turn to God and believe in Jesus Christ, the Bible says at that, that instant in time You're a child of God to those who believe in His name. That being born again happens in a moment, a historic moment of time. And it's for all of eternity. It's permanent and it's complete. And it's also dramatic. When God takes a rebellious person who's running from God and turns them and breaks his heart to where they come to faith and trust in Christ, it's dramatic what happens. And it's evident to the world around us what happens. I'm concerned. I'm concerned because we live in a world today that says you can come to faith in Christ and nobody has to know about it. Could you imagine getting this guy and saying, walk, stand up and walk. But don't get too excited about what God's done in your life. Calm down. They'll think you're a Jesus freak or something if you show a little bit of enthusiasm or excitement for what God's done. So don't say anything. Just keep it to yourself. How can you not help but to praise the name of Jesus when you understand because of what He did in your place, you will never be held accountable for sin, past, present, and future. That you, when you die, absent from your body, you'll be present with the Lord. How can you not get excited about that? how can you not get excited about the fact that all your sins all the garbage that you've done everything that happened in your life when you've come to God and asked for forgiveness as far as from the east as from the west He's removed our transgressions how can you not be excited for the fact that God doesn't hold it against us anymore though our sin was as crimson He made it white as snow man this guy got up and he was walking and leaping and praising God and I'll tell you what Now that he could stand, the whole world knew where he stood. Does the world know where you stand today? For he has not given us a spirit of timidity, but one of power and might. And when the Spirit comes, you shall be my witnesses. You will testify of me in Jerusalem and Judea and to the outermost parts of the earth. Do people know where you stand? Be steadfast then, and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil in the Lord is never in vain. Father, we just... Lord, I'm I'm guilty. I'm guilty of not taking advantage of the audiences that you bring into my life. On a day-to-day basis, the individuals who come, the people that work for us, the people that work with us, the people that you bring into our path, God, how many times have I missed an opportunity to declare to them the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and for that I ask for forgiveness. God, and I just pray that every one of us who have come to faith in Christ, that we will rely upon the Spirit of God and the power and the might, the dynamite of God, to make a difference in the world in which we live. God, help us to become men like this lame man who could now walk, who was walking and leaping and praising God and he stood behind the apostles even though there was was a threat of arrest and imprisonment and he stood behind them the whole way because he knew it was in the name of Jesus Christ that he had been healed. God, help us also that the world around us would know that those of us who have come to faith in Christ would know where we stand as we proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness and brought us into his light. And we just ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.